John is still in uh, still in Hawaii. It is it is like a spa. It's very spa esque. Your music that you've composed here, like or like whales, maybe yeah, oh, it's like it, whale definitely, song. Definitely like the whales, isn't it? <laughs> and then it's yeah, then it's like dolphins. Well, it's got all all different movements, you know. Sure. So, all right. Well, this was requested. You know, everyone's weighing in now about all the options you've mm-hmm. given us with. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife Amanda did enjoy. Oh, Amanda did. Yeah, she, she enjoyed it. this. Oh. So that I thought we should. All right. We'll give her. We'll give her a little bit of the Vin, uh, Vin Ex- clarinet. Uh, Experimental yeah. compositions yeah. by Vin Scalza. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, it's very soothing until it's soothing until it's not. You know. <laughs> yeah. Which is a little like life. Well, here we are. It's November already. Can you believe that? No, it's November. November. And, uh, this is the Kate and Vince Galsa podcast, episode seven. Seven. We're a little late. We're getting a little lax with our schedule, but I think it's okay. Well, you know, when you started this with me, when you convinced me that I should do this, you made a big point about how you know, we didn't have to uh, be on time with anything. You we didn't keep have to... saying that. I never said that. No. <laughs> you know, you didn't. You said we could be very casual about it. We could just yeah. do it when we wanted to do it. I didn't it. say and... that. No? No. I said it shouldn't be stressful. And if that, that meant this week that I could come on Sunday, which meant we didn't put it out on Saturday. I like to put it out on Saturday for sentimental reasons. Mm. So that your listeners who are used to having you on Saturdays have you on Saturday. Well, it shouldn't be stressful for either of us. No. Right? <laughs> is that is that what when we're talking about stressful, we we mean both of us, right? Ideally, just every, anyone involved, us, <laughs> anyone listening. Your wife, my wife. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I get it. <laughs> Last week, I tried to add for the Towns Van Sant. I tried to add a picture of Towns, mm. and iTunes didn't like that, and oh, so really? it didn't load on iTunes. Well, you know, there's a whole... That was stressful. I think there's a whole deal now. Just at right when I left FUV back in the spring, they were um, getting very persnickety about giving proper credit to any photograph that wound up on their website. Yeah. And I think in general, just as with music, they're getting very persnickety now about the rights to photos. To photos. And, mm-hmm. you know, because everybody just sort of willy-nilly posts everything and forwards everything and shares everything. Mm-hmm. And there are photographers out there who are supposed to get paid when somebody uses their photograph. So. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like it is such a free-for-all on places like Tumblr. and, But I, I guess an individual just posting a copyrighted photo doesn't have as much to lose as, right, if someone wanted to sue FUV or iTunes for posting their picture without permission, mm-hmm. those guys have something to lose. Yeah, I liked seem- the idea of being able to attach a photo to an episode, so like you could see a, a picture of towns, but mm-hmm. I mean, people can just go look them up, I guess. Listen, yeah. I tried. Well, the the photo did show up on the announcements on Facebook, right? 
didn't yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all right. I reached my limitations. You know, I'm pretty proud of myself that I figured out how to post these at all. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. It wasn't too difficult, and that's really the amazing thing about the podcasting is it's not that complicated. I mean, and you have all the equipment, so you're able to do any editing and any, you've got these nice microphones. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But it was inevitable that I reached the limit of my understanding of uh-huh. what I was actually yeah. doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's nothing like just going ahead blindly and, and uh, <laughs> you know. attacking a particular area, and you know, and when they finally throw the wall up mm. in front of you, you figure out a way to either get around it or mm. you just say, "Nah, all right, thanks, I've, bye." I've really become one of those insufferable people who will not read directions ever. Uh huh. Like uh-huh. Oh. I, I won't. I just my eyes glaze over. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the worst kind of person. Just read the directions. Well, yeah, I think most of us sort of try it first on our own and then wind up anyhow going back and reading the directions. <laughs> and then you read, like, the first two steps of the directions. You're like, oh, yeah, I got oh, yeah, this. I can do this. Yeah. yeah, no, no, I got it now. <laughs> yeah, I definitely understand this now. <laughs> yeah. um, well, we've been getting some emails. Yeah, at, uh, we have a we have a dedicated uh, email address, which is right. uh, Vinskelsa podcast at gmail dot com at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. And we've been getting some lovely emails. And... I wrote back to that guy who who wrote last. You know, I read his his email last time. The guy who witnessed uh, some kind of uh, f- a bust he claimed at at WFMU back in 1969 yeah. or 70 or something and it's a it's a great story like yeah. he, I said please give me more details and he gave me all these details but I just don't remember <laughs> I mean he swears that he you know him and he and I were like doing stuff together all day long and yeah. And then the feds came and arrested an engineer and let him off in handcuffs. And I I just, I, I'm not going to argue with him. I just don't remember it. Yeah. Well, listen. You know, I mean, it's the way, that's that's what the 60s, that's what yeah. it was all about, you know. <laughs> Remembering things from the 60s is yeah. overrated. Yeah. That's, yeah. That doesn't need that. <laughs> uh, well, we have a lovely email from... Uh, Jim Arbogast, Arbogast, sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Oh, AKA Jace the Ace. Thank you, Jim. Jace the Ace? Jace the Ace. Whoa. About episode six. He said, just listen to this awesome, I'm Vin's age, and I recall the January, February 1970 days with whole lot of love blasting everywhere. Oh, yeah. I've been a Towns Van Zant fan since the early 70s when WHFS in Bethesda, Maryland played his tunes in their cutting-edge shows. Mm. I listened to Idiot's Delight often, Sirius XM, for 10 years and was sad when Vin retired. This podcast struck me in such a way that I'm left speechless. What a treat. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. What's his nickname again? Jace the Ace. Jace the Ace. Thank you, Ace Man. So that's from Jim. Uh, let's see, we got a nice, we'll say hello to Michael Kohler. Thank you for your lovely note. Uh, he enjoyed also the Towns Van Zant. And then from Shelby, we got this. 
Hi, Kate and Vin. Vin mentioned Dick Gregory in podcast number six. I just wanted to let you know that Dick Gregory at 83 is still very much alive and still controversial. Though early on he was a comedian and author, I think he has been better known over the past several decades as a civil rights activist and commentator on politics, race, and social issues, and is still quite active and outspoken. Cheers, Shelby. Mm. And so Dick Gregory was, we, we mentioned him in the Towns Van Zant episode because Towns was doing a concert where Dick Gregory was also Well, appearing. Gregory, Dick Gregory was on that label that I worked for mm-hmm. at the time, Pompey Records um, and Towns and, and Dick Gregory and the rock group Mandrake Memorial. Right. Like the three artists on the label at that point. Uh, all were doing a concert, a Thanksgiving Eve concert, actually, um, in uh, 1969 uh, at, at uh, Carnegie Hall. In, uh, in New York. So that's, you know, I met him a couple of times back then, and I was technically the promotions guy. That yeah. was in the last episode of, of our podcast. But now that I, I uh, Google him, I see he's all over the Internet now as a, um, a commentator, 83 years old. Here's just like a, a random sample of something from uh, that I found on YouTube. My neighbor across the pond. He sounds exactly the same Stein as he did. Piano hmm? Up the hill, ocean spray. He's got this hmm? big, long, Serious beautiful life. white beard. Hmm? And what I can't understand about you white folks, I swear to you. <laughs> wow. See, I've been through all the movements. I look, I know King. King would never say nothing, but we got to love him. And when the cameras leave, call you a homie. I will. <laughs> but I will. All right. Dick <laughs> Thank you, Dick. Thanks, Dick. <laughs> but he's a you know, very respected uh, figure in the civil rights movement and in the b- black community now, African American yeah. community now. And he's uh, obviously at the cranky old guy stage of his life. Yeah, aren't we all? You know Shelby. Yeah. That that guy, listener Shelby. Yes, listener Shelby. You know, this, you know the great story about Shelby. Tell us. It's a, it's a, a K Rock story. Yes. Actually, in the mid '80s, you actually met Shelby. Shelby used to write to me all the time. Uh, N.E.W. in the late '70s into the early '80s, and then K Rock in the later the later 80s and uh i would those are the days when i would i would answer mail it was snail mail hard mail you know Mm -hmm. handwritten typed or whatever and i used to sit in my office uh at home uh once a month and i'd get all the mail that had come in and i'd just write back thanks for you know your nice letter and blah 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 and i was just I just assumed from the get-go that Shelby was a, a, a girl, mm-hmm. a, a woman. Um, I don't know why. And Shelby and I began a kind of a slightly uh, innocent but flirtatious uh, snail mail relationship, uh-huh. right? So you remember, <laughs> and it went on for a couple of years, you know, he would write and comment on something with the show and I'd write back and say, oh, thanks so much. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, sometime around 86 or thereabouts, when I went back to work at, at, at K-Rock, you were six years old. Um, we had a contest. It was the bus ride to nowhere. 
Yep. Remember, people could uh, enter the contest by mail, and we picked the winners, and we got on one of those big uh, uh, accordion buses, and we took a, a bus ride up to Stoke State Forest up in the upper top part of New Jersey. It was the bus ride to nowhere. They didn't know where they were going to go, and neither did I. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the people on the on the bus, you know, I'm going up and down the aisle of the bus, and people are introducing themselves to me and uh, whatever. And then finally this guy, this nice, you know, gentle guy says, Van, uh, I'm Shelby Ash. And I go, I think that was his last name, Ash. I go, Shelby? Shelby, who who writes to me all the time, and he goes, "Yeah, I'm a guy." <laughs> I mean, I had never, I had never called him a girl, but obviously he had picked up on the slight flirtatious tone of my letters, you know. And he goes, "Yeah, uh, you know," and he still writes to me to this Aww. day now. Yeah, but I thought Shelby was definitely. Uh, and you took that opportunity to flirt. You yeah, thought a lady, a nice lady, was yeah. writing to you. <laughs> wow. So we'll tell mom to skip listening to this one. Well, no, no, no. She she knows. She's fine with yeah. Shelby. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of secret. Last time we were talking about you and you and Uncle Louie. Yeah. Your love. You were admitting as a on the recording from FMU that you loved him and that well, he had rejected you. I, uh, uh he didn't reject reject me so much as I don't think he really believed that I was serious. (laughs) And I'm sure that I didn't either. But again, that was the 60s also. You know, the the phrase that existed back in the 60s, the phrase that I came into adulthood with was the phrase free love. Yeah. So there was maybe, so there was maybe a little bit more of a pose in you yeah, do doing that routine on that particular, like making a little bit of a show of being like, "Oh, this is Lou, the only man I yeah, want to yeah, make yeah. love with." Like yeah, that's yeah. a little was a little bit of a like, a little. I'm cool. I'm down with free love. Yeah, I can I can admit that I uh, find a man attractive. Yeah, right, definitely. But that was your that but was I, your cool. I bought I bought into the whole peace love you know, power to the people package back then. It's why I had no ambition, basically. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was... That's funny. Yeah, I just figured my life would be what it was, and uh, I would just go with the flow. What? Huh. Yeah. Did you have no ambition because... No one should have ambition? No one should be any better than anyone else? No, it was just that it was no longer important to me. Yeah. What was important was my friends and, you know, my relationships and and poetry and music and art and, you know, the other stuff was, it didn't matter. You know, it would take care of itself and... Luckily, it did mm-hmm. in in my case. You know, for but some you, people, it didn't. You don't think you had? Okay, well, this is good. So as we, because I want us to, as we proceed through these podcasts, to be. I mean, we're not really going in chronological order necessarily with the recordings we're going to play or what we talk about, but a little bit like eventually, I want to hear about 
all the different stations and the way your career progressed. And I, I, I want to keep in mind, maybe as we talk about it, this idea of like, were there moments when you had to have some ambition or does it really feel like your career just kind of like happened? I mean, you don't have to answer that now, but it's something I, I'm interested to keep in mind. I could answer it right now. <laughs> I think, no, because I've thought about it a lot. I think that that basically, yes, my career happened. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to be in the right places at the right time. Mm-hmm. In a time when there was this enormous change going on in the field that I was interested in, which was radio and music radio, and in the culture at large. And so there were these opportunities that when they presented themselves to me, like getting a phone call from a guy who was a a, a sort of a distant factor in the FMU experience, Larry Yurden. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something we'll I talk about. I feel like about. he's the patron saint of this podcast. Yeah. He you comes know. <laughs> up on every episode. It's good, though. He yeah, really is. Yeah. He and was I, important in that early. He, uh, you know, he called me up one day when I had, well, I mean, this is what, what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk okay, about. Okay, let's wait, because I want to talk about that next All right, phase. so we'll wait. But I think, you know, I do think, um, Here's what I'll propose then. I propose that you didn't have ambition, but you did have confidence. Ah, yes. Because in presented with those situations, you felt capable of like, yes, I can do this. I felt like I owed it to myself to follow through. Mm -hmm. If if the universe was going to give me The the opportunity, then... I, I I I had a lot of uh, self doubt. Sure. You know, and to this day, I still have doubt. I question whether I've been a fraud for all these years, but I I knew enough to follow through and yeah. and go to the open door and step in and say, okay, well now what? Right. Um. Okay, we have one more. We have an email that actually I apologize because. Uh, it was sent to us back in August, and I realized I never responded. I forwarded it to you, and you responded to me, but we never responded. To Richard Robbins, who wrote to us, said, Love the podcast. So great to hear Vin's voice again. A question. I took tennis lessons from Charlie Lundgren as a kid in North Jersey. Same guy. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, and you had talked about Charlie Lundgren. FMU. He FMU. was the uh, He was the faculty advisor. Right. To the radio station. Right. So he, we think that that was... Yeah, it had to have been him because I, I knew that he was, was a tennis player. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Charlie was this you know, older guy who was... Um, he was something in the administration of the college yeah. at Uppsala. I'm not, I don't think he was a teacher. I think he worked in like you know, one of the offices. But he was our faculty advisor because he was a radio buff. Okay. And... Uh, uh, very straight guy. Yeah. But every once in a while, Charlie would come by and um, we'd get him to sing his song. He had one song that he was known for um, singing because, like, you know, when he was at a party or something, he'd get a little tipsy and he'd sing Yellow Bird. <laughs> I remember that very distinctly about 
this very straight laced, like, you know, yellow this yellow bird, bird up high in banana tree. tree. <laughs> this straight laced uh, Swedish, you know, school administrator with his tie and his jacket back in 1967 singing Yellow Bird. That so was that Charlie Lundgren. He, pr- so. and he probably taught Richard Robbins tennis. I would imagine if it was in North Jersey in that period of time. Well, Richard, thank you for writing to us. Sorry it took us so long to answer yeah, the question. Yeah, we'll get it. You know, the universe uh, presents these opportunities, and, uh, you know, we'll get around to but it. But we are. We do read our emails. So if you want to email us with um, any questions or any requests for um, future episodes ah. uh, for what you'd like to hear about. Okay. Because someone actually said, someone on Facebook wrote that they were they were going, they were so excited that we had done a Towns, Towns episode because they were going to ask if you would, ah. if you would um, do something with them. Well, I have tons of recordings. Yeah. Uh, from over the years. And, um, you know, we'll delve into them from time to time. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this sort of to be to be frank about it, this podcast is really your way of finding out some stuff about me that you don't know that you're curious about. And, yep. And then I get to find out stuff about you <laughs> as well. And it's nice that we get to spend time together. Yeah. My shrink was very. Uh, <laughs> she was very happy to hear about the 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 daughter father bonding that we're doing. Well, then I and and I mean it's that, and then also that these interviews are so cool, and it's so easy for people to be able to listen to them through podcasts. Yeah, there's no reason why they shouldn't be available yeah, to people. Po- podcast is a whole strange new world. Well, because all the podcast interview shows are all new interviews with current people mm. you know but it's like okay what about all these people who aren't around anymore <laughs> like let's hear what they had to say too yeah okay so we have a cool okay we have a cool surprise with that coming up we do today in this show yeah yeah we might i think we might sit, well we'll see let's see how the, how much time we take up with our ranting okay um i want to do since people have requested this i want to do a what are we reading segment because as much as people are missing hearing your new music recommendations, I think they also are missing hearing your book recommendations. Oh. So okay. what are you reading? Well, uh, the, the, the books that have most delighted me in the past few months are uh, the, the trilogy that Jane Smiley has put out this year. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like the 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 past hundred years, basically. Oh yeah, you were telling me about um, that. The third volume, which is called Golden Age, has just come out, and I've just started to read it, so I can't comment on it yet. But the the trilogy follows a family, an extended family, through the twentieth century. Uh, the the earlier volumes were called Some Luck and Early Warning. And uh, the entire three-volume series is called The Last Hundred Years Trilogy. And it's just, it's just wonderful. She really manages to uh, make you feel like you're a part of this family. 
and it's, it's like one, it's the same family yeah. over a hundred years. Yeah, but it's like a, a very extended family, so that it becomes really more than one family. There's a whole bunch of them with, through intermarriage and and everything else. But but each chapter is a year. Oh, I love that. So you really know exactly where you are and what's going on in the world in history in real time uh, because each chapter is uh, is a specific year so the third volume opens I think in 1987 so in the first two volumes she's dealt with um, World War One and the Depression and then World War Two, and then the post-war Cold War period and she's got spies and people mm-hmm. who work for the CIA mm-hmm. and rock and rollers and you know all kinds of stuff because it's sort of a picture of who uh, who Americans of a certain class and a certain background who they've been for a hundred years and I really like them a whole lot. Great. Uh, and, this is, and this is the third of the trilogy the, that's out the, now? The third is the one called Golden Age okay. that's just come out. William Boyd, who is an Englishman, um, is has been a favorite author of mine for many years. Uh, he wrote... He wrote a, a novel called A Good Man in Africa and An Ice Cream War that were pretty famous back around the time that when they first came out but he's also responsible for a beautiful novel called any human heart that in a way is very similar to the jane smiley book in that it follows one man through a good portion of the 20th century an englishman um and it was turned into a a a beautiful uh, pbs uh, bbc three-part film thing he also wrote uh, one of the, the one of the quote new James Bond novels uh-huh. a couple of years back, and his latest is called Sweet Caress, and in a way it's the female version of Any Human Heart because it follows a woman through a good portion of the 20th century, a woman who was a a photographer and a sort of a bohemian, and she gets involved with various historical moments. And I love books like that, that plop fictional characters into real moments with real people. Yeah. And uh, it's sort of a neat way to, to read history. Yeah. So that's what I'm reading. And then I've, I've been trying to read this damn book that everybody's talking about now City called City on Fire. But I got, I mean, look at this. I got to page 529 and I finally stopped. Yeah. It's 900 and some odd pages I long. Know. I know. I can't, I mean, it's too long. Somebody should have said to this guy, Garth Riskalberg, hey, you don't have to put it all in one book. You know, you could relax and maybe write two or three. Well, it's funny because these other books you are recommending are, are sprawling. Long. Yeah. And are sprawling, long, historical. Mm. But then you reach a point where it's too much. It's too much in one book. This book Spread is, it out, buddy. It's, it's almost like, see, I tend to fall asleep when I read. Yeah. Right? So a book that's 900 and some odd pages long, when I fall asleep and it falls on me... Oh, I see. ...hurts. There's a bigger problem yeah, here. Yeah, it just... smacks into my glasses, <laughs> you know. Let's see. Well, <laughs> this is a... 
This is a heavy. <laughs> gonna break the table. <laughs> this is a heavy book. We should get you an e-reader. Like I have my little. Uh, then yeah. you just scroll. But I'm not sure that this book isn't being overhyped. I think maybe it's being overhyped. Well, it's his debut, right? Yeah, it's got a good story debut. behind it. So it's that's New very York exciting. In, this, in the 70s yeah. and punk rock and and uh, economic crisis and downtown art scene and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. it's and it's and it's a fairly straightforward piece of fiction, which I like, except for when he goes off into other formats every once in a while. But it's just too much. And after 500 pages, I thought, it's not... It's if it's not, not doing it for you, yeah, by no. then it's not going to do it. And I'm reading an old Philip K. Dick novel called The Man in the High Castle. Because there's an Amazon um, series on, on Amazon, you know... Prime. Uh, Prime. Um, that the first two episodes are up. And then towards the end of the month of November, they're going to put up the rest of them. It's it's one of these Philip K. Dick, uh, who's this great like science mm -hmm. fiction futuristic writer. Yeah. Um, the 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 Allies lost World War Two, and uh, Nazi Germany has taken over the eastern half of the United States, and Imperial Japan has taken over the western half of the United States, and only in the sort of um, beginning of the Rocky Mountains, is there a free area that's not controlled by either the Japanese or the, the Germans? Uh-huh. And it's this really neat what-if what alternative history. So I decided to go back and read it. Have you read it before a no, while ago? No, I've never read it. I've read other Philip K. Dick stuff, but I've never read this one. Um, so that's what I'm reading. And, that's but, good. But if anybody asks me, I just... I immediately go right to the Jane Smiley books and say, yeah. this, these are, they're, they're brilliant. They're just Well, when brilliant. you get involved in a trilogy, I feel like that's exciting that because you get so invested and then you're like waiting for more to come out. And, and she put them out all basically in the same year. Really? Yeah. The first one came out beginning of the year, second one in the spring and the third one in. My gosh. So she had I them, I guess, that, yeah. done and she planned See, it. See, it's interesting way. though to, to do that rather than put out the 2,000 page novel, yeah. you know. I think sometimes publishers get excited about that idea of like the um, the huge, right? Like the mm -hmm. huge big doorstopper. So I'm also reading kind of a doorstopper, which is um, A Little Life by Hanya Yanagahara, I think is how you say her name. That's been out for, I think it came out the beginning of the year. You don't, that hasn't come under, into your radar though, no, A Little Life. Yeah. A Little Life. Yeah, if I show you the cover, you might recognize it. Um, is it, it's not young adult, it's regular. No, no, it's... Um, you know, truthfully, I've had a bunch of friends, young adult novels coming out recently. And because um, I'm in a group where we I'm in a great group called the Fearless Fifteeners, mm -hmm. which is um, anyone who has a young adult or middle grade novel uh, that came out in 2015 could join. And it's been really lovely because we go to each other's book launches and um it's very supportive and sweet but i 
am having trouble reading young adults right now. And I, I try, I mostly just get around to my friend's books um, yeah. because there's a lot of interesting young adult coming out right now. And it's kind of that thing where, you know, they say if you want to ruin reading for yourself, become a writer. Because <laughs> you just can't, it, it stops being relaxing. Yeah, sure. So yeah. I have to read... Right now, I can only read stuff that's really, really different, different from, from what I'm you're doing. writing. Yeah, um, I think I've heard about this Hanya Yanagihara, Yanagihara, a little life. And it's funny, I'm I'm looking at at uh, Kate's uh, phone here, and it mentions it says customers who who bought this frequently bought. Fates and Furies, the new Lauren Groff novel, and yeah. City on Fire. So yeah, they're it, the big, they're the big literary. Those are the big literary uh, okay. headlines of the year. Okay, I'll let you know when I'm done with it. So it's about these four friends, who it's very literary, it's very New York, but it's also super readable. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's uh, told. From the, you know, it goes back and forth between the four perspectives of these characters, which I like, but I like because it, it I'm, I'm able to put it down mm-hmm. and then pick it back, back up again. I know people who read this book in two days. Uh, how long is it? <laughs> it's, it's, let's see. What does Amazon tell us? Uh, we need more information. Description. It's written in English. Double day. Seven hundred and thirty-six. Yeah. All right, that's a that's a long book. It's good. Yeah. It's a, and I got it as a hard copy and not as an ebook, so I'm carrying it around. Oh wow, yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm enjoying reading it, but there are people. It's got a rabid fan base. Mm-hmm. But we can talk about it. I don't want to make any judgments yet. Okay. But I did just finish reading uh, Carrie Brownstein from the band Sleater Kitty. Oh yeah, her and memoir. Also, mm-hmm, her memoir is called. Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, and that just came out, and I enjoyed it a lot. I really liked it, and especially if you are a fan of Slater Kinney's or just of that, like, 90s and early 2000s. I found it really fascinating. I mean, I'm also, I love Portlandia, but this is also, this is just about her, her music career. And I found it really reassuring because she talks a lot about touring and about how hard it was. Mm -hmm. And just as someone who's also toured a lot, like I really, really related to her descriptions of being on the road and how she was getting sick all the time and that she's kind of a neurotic person and she would make herself sick and she like got shingles and she got, you know, and, and she felt then like they had this, you know, this three person dynamic and that she was always being the problem. You know, it's all these very like unglamorous things where they were total rock stars Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, God, like they're carrying their own equipment there, even at the height of their success. And so I found it to be just a a really interesting portrait of a band and of the kind of work that goes into into that where, you know, it's like any any good autobiography or memoir where you're learning like, yeah, sure, this person actually 
had to work incredibly hard at their craft mm-hmm. to then like get up on stage and scream into the microphone. Like that was like it took them years to perfect that and it took all this dedication and all this work and like they only got to the place that they got to with with that dedication. So I I recommend that. I really liked it. That yeah. I was thinking actually of reading it, so good. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought it up. I will put it on my list. Yeah, I think if you if you really have no interest in the music from that era, I think you, there might be some sections where, you know, I mean, I find it fascinating to mm-hmm. hear about like the the personality of each of the albums and and it made me want to go back and listen. Mm-hmm. To That's <laughs> the best kind of writing when you uh, write about music and you make the reader want to hear it all yeah. again. Sure. And I got very nostalgic for I went back and listened to uh, their albums from 2005 was one of the, I think they came out with one in 2002 and 2005, maybe. Now I can check my, I can check my iTunes. Um, and so I was really listening to them. I don't think I really discovered Sleater Kinney in high school, it was really after college that they became important to me. And it was, you know, during the Bush years mm. when they were they were being very political. Let's see. Yes. Oh, yeah. The Woods was 2005. One Beat was 2002. So I think One Beat was the first one, the first one I really remember where I know every song, you know, and The Woods in 2005. And it was fascinating to, to remember the time that that music came from. And it's not that it's dated, but it's like, oh, okay, this, it, it's not like this anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I still find it really listenable. You know, I still really enjoy listening to it. So it's not dated in that way, but it's definitely of its moment in that it, <laughs> it's like, you know, anti-authority, anti, anti-war, anti government you know the government is lying to you and to think about how present that was for us then like 2005 Mm -hmm. I mean sure that was 10 years ago now which is crazy but to think about 2005 we were actively in the middle of like we are being lied to no one is listening to us uh, it was weapons of mass destruction. Well, and I mean, all the of that crap stuff, that yeah. was happening then. And so it was interesting to me to just have through through her memoir and then being taken back to listening to that music of that moment. I think the the best music of any era that still speaks to us years later has that element of being firmly rooted in the period that it comes from, yeah, but then manages to transcend because those problems tend to be universal and mm-hmm. they tend to never go away. Well, and there's an angstiness in that music that I think will always be universal. It's just the ways in which it gets expressed and the ways in which it... I think you can... I, th- I think a teenager or a young person could listen to that music now and... and feel it it's just maybe the words they're saying mm. you know mm. would be different well the bastards are still lying to us though. <laughs> they, they sure are they sure are um okay so that was oh and i i bought the new gloria steinem and oh really i got i got an autographed copy at um powerhouse arena in dumbo is very excited oh. they just had autographed copies there 
And I got, I just bought the um, reissue of the Eileen Miles book, uh, Chelsea Girls. Ah, I've been reading about that. Yeah, yeah, because that's been out of print for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of hers, but I've never read that. And is, that's, that's nonfiction as well, right? It's nonfiction. All of her stuff is nonfiction to a certain degree. Mm. I mean, because she's a poet and... Her stuff is always very, you know, lyrical and fanciful and mm-hmm. put through her poetry brain. I mean, it, you wouldn't classify it, I think, as memoir, but it's it's from her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, with all this reading you're doing, um, I can assume you're also writing? I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I am writing something new. Okay. And it's about, it was good to read Carrie's memoir also because I'm, I'm trying to write about a character who's a pop star. And, uh, and so that's, I'm trying to read, read and watch some things about that experience. About contemporary female pop stars. Yeah. yeah. I did, when I was first working on the proposal for this book, I, I watched a bunch of the goofy, like, Katy Perry's movie, and Taylor Swift has a, a special. And uh, who else? Pink. Um, that's kind of more the character I'm writing is is more like those those women, like a big... Mm-hmm big scale uh, stadium show kind of pop star. I still have to watch Beyonce's HBO special. I haven't watched that one uh-huh. yet. Okay. This yeah. is, you're, you're, I'm not in this world. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know. So. But, but do you think, do you, are there bands like Slater Kinney speaking to young people now, the way they spoke to people back in the That's aughts? what I was wondering. I, I don't know. I, it's interesting. I think there are people who are starting to to dip their toe into a kind of activism in their music, like people like Janelle Monet and, um, I mean, truthfully, even Kanye West, who I feel like, I mean, it tends to be a lot of activism right now around race and around, um, you know, inequality and around police brutality. Like, I feel like those are... are really defining issues of the moment for young people mm-hmm. and about being inclusive. I mean, the the issues everyone's, yeah, those tend to be like the issues right now. So there are some pop stars who I feel like are starting to take that on, but from their place of already being pop stars. Like Sleater Kinney and Riot Girl. You know, Sleater Kinney kind of became pop, uh, pop stars in spite of themselves. Yes, yeah, right. They, you know, they were very much grounded in what this thing was, and then just the moment of a cultural moment made them bigger because it was time for that. So it's a different thing. I don't know, truthfully, if they're... Uh, because I do, I look at pop stars, and there's definitely, in the past few years, been a big trend toward... Giving, giving lip service to uh, personal empowerment, and I don't mean to say lip service as in it's not sincere, but mm-hmm. um, I think with Gaga really started this trend of saying, "I'm I'm going to of of putting some level of activism in their music by you know saying born this way, saying 
you know, actively saying, I'm talking to queer kids, I'm talking to kids who feel like outsiders. But that's very, that's all very personal, you know, that's a very like interior kind of activism, which it's still important. But I think then that made it safe for like Katy Perry to suddenly, Katy Perry, I know I'm talking about music you have no idea about, Katy Perry's song Firework, like Firework is, none of these songs say the word uh, Gaga says gay. Gaga will say gay. Katy Perry firework is like, baby, you're a firework. Come on, show them what you're worth. Like, mm-hmm. and then, but she will then say, this is for gay kids. So, and then, you know, Beyonce stood in front of a giant sign that said feminist at the VMAs. Like, all of a sudden, there are these, these, in the past five years, there are these ways in which pop stars, especially female pop stars, have been allowed to work the idea of personal empowerment into their music in a way that is generous. Like, they're saying personal empowerment, like, I am empowered, and so should you be. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm, that's the kind of character I'm trying to write, actually. Um, So I'm really fascinated by that. Um... I mean, even, like, Nicki Minaj, who has a really, like, cocky, like, I'm I'm the greatest thing ever. Even with her, there's still a thing of, like, I'm amazing. Like, you can be, you kind of are. You are, too. Yeah. But I'm, like, I'm the best. But I'm the best, right. But also, you guys are great. Where does someone such as Adele fit in to this? She's still a crooner. Like, even though she's a pop star, she has a a, a totally different... Her stuff is so confessional mm-hmm. that it's not the same kind of anthem singing. I see. Um, okay. She's still, like, doing this, like, confessional crooner thing, which someone like Taylor Swift, like, straddles that line. I mean, Taylor Swift is doing kind of confessional, but then she's writing these, like, songs that to dance to or to you know, anthem to, but Taylor Swift's whole career is based on her having this relationship with her fans. That's meant to be a kind of camaraderie and be like an inclusive, like girl power kind of thing. And it's interesting to look back at right at the right girl movement and and Carrie Brownstein talks a little bit in the book about how in the late 90s it was so odd for them to be coming up against the beginning of this like girl power idea when um the Spice Girls came along and all of a sudden it was like 97 to 99 this was a thing like girl power mm-hmm. and it was this marketable <laughs> idea and meanwhile here was this group of women who for the past 10 years had been like actually embodying an idea of of women making music that was like about female anger so the idea that girl power meant like we wear coordinated cute Mm-hmm. outfits skimpy well, outfits and like have like i'm i'm posh spice i'm scary spice like and also the african-american one is scary spice. it's well you know it's that <laughs> it's that thing that we've touched upon a, a bunch of times on these podcasts is the whole 
thing of uh, a, a revolutionary um, moment gets co-opted and mm-hmm. it's like how how quickly does that happen how quickly yeah. do the corporations and the fashion industry and and other big business take over and um begin to control ruin it, it. yeah you know. well and is there a trickle down effect in some way like for girls for young girls I don't know. Were the Spice Girls empowering? I mean, I can't really imagine that they were. But but I do think what's happening right now is, you know, Beyonce standing in front of a giant sign that says feminist gives women permission to use that word. It just does. So even if you you want to argue what of her songs are or are not feminist, what of her image is or is not feminist. It's unprecedented that a pop star of that level would even be entertaining talking about mm. such things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it... I really give credit to Gaga. I think that Gaga was such an outlier in how odd she was. I mean, she was really out there when she first started. And I think it just kind of bulldozed everybody. And and there was she started out so outrageous that she had nothing to lose. Right. So she's right. never done or said anything that's shocked anyone because the girls showed up wearing raw meat to an <laughs> award show. And so she, it takes you out of the race for criticism uh-huh. almost. Uh-huh. You know, it's like Oh, I'm going to be, it's like a, it's a, it's a get out of jail free card. And I think it's a situation that some other pop stars are trying. It's like, how can you be as outrageous as possible? So then you can kind of get away with doing what you really want to do without just being written off as completely crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's a tough one. You've given clearly that's a lot of thought. Given a lot of thought because you're you're writing a book about this phenomenon. Yeah, so, yeah. It I find it really fascinating because it's so different also from male pop star swagger, and I I feel, you know, I, I mean I say this with some sarcasm. I feel a little bad for the boys right now <laughs> because I think there's only the idea of being a a guy with a lot of bravado is not new that's a really old idea sure that's like since the beginning of time and so there's kind of not as much fun to be had with it and then it's like okay well what else are we supposed to do if we can't be like i'm the greatest singer of all time screw the rest of you you know i think like that's something that kanye struggles with i'm i'm fascinated with kanye and also we watch we watch the Kardashians, and I just think <laughs> Kim and Kanye. I'm like, I am obsessed because he is a complete egomaniac in the service of his work. Like he, he think you know, like he believes in himself as an artist, and whether or not you agree with him that he's the greatest artist ever created, it is what allows him to get his work done. So is that a bad thing? You know? Yeah. 
So, but the but it's not new. And I I have often said that I wish Kanye were a woman because I would, I. And I think with these other, with these women, what I'm looking for is the hints of that, of that, you know, I am a God, I am, and here is my, here are my messages to you, my people. Like, so I keep, I'm kind of waiting to see when one of these women gets as, just speaks it as plainly as Kanye does. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And at this point, um, you know, they're successful enough. Like they're these po- like Beyonce had nothing to lose by standing in front of the word feminist. She's one of the richest, yeah, most successful she's women already, in the world. She's already achieved the they success. There's nothing to lose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No one. I mean, everyone loves everything she does. So now it's like, okay, now what do you get to? Now that you're not seeking anyone's approval, what do you um, get to do? And and. It's exciting to watch. But you're you're so right about Gaga that she was so outrageous from the get go that now she's like, you know, making making records and going out on tour with Tony Bennett and right. and being given awards by all these relatively straight organizations and everything. It's like, well, don't you remember how crazy she was a couple of years ago? She's still crazy. Well, then the funny thing is, I think then the only place to go is toward being more traditional and toward legitimacy. Uh, So, and part of me is like, oh, I hope she doesn't stay there. Because... You know, other people can do that. Like I, like she's a great singer. Well, she like, has <laughs> she has incredible talent. Yeah, as well. but it's like a lot of people can croon with Tony Bennett, mm-hmm. and I I think also with her, it is a thing of her 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 showing us that she can. Like I can also do this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> we've gotten very far off topic. Wait, there is no topic today. This is, <laughs> this is the non-topic version of the podcast. Well, we covered... Uh, well, anyway, that's what I'm I'm writing. I'm writing... It's going to be another young adult novel, um, but also similar to Fans of the Impossible Life, which is my young adult novel, which is out now um, in bookstores. And both of these... I, I'm definitely pushing at the boundaries of what anyone would consider young adult. And I do really like it as a genre because I think genre fiction is great because it values character and plot really above all else. And, you know, if you think about mysteries, romance, historical fiction, and young adult, there are certain things you have to have. Like you have to have these kinds of characters. They have to be engaging you in this way. You have to have a clear plot that you're excited to follow. It should be a page turner as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I, I think those restrictions are fun. And it's fun to not just be, I mean, adult literary fiction is is awesome, but you can kind of get away with whatever you want if you're like, this is my stylistic Choice And there are a lot of stylistic choices I made when I was first working on fans that I was then asked to clarify. Mm-hmm. And they, I think it really helped the book. So I do like writing genre fiction, but I'm, def- I'm realizing, as um, many adults tell me, they're like, this doesn't, this doesn't seem like young adults. Like, it's about teenagers, but it doesn't seem like it's for teenagers. I'm like... Yeah, mm-hmm. I get that. Mm. So this next one I think will similarly be crossing 
There are plenty of books that do that, that cross that line mm-hmm. between young adult and adult fiction. So this will be another one like that. But it's just at the beginnings. Okay. Um, so, oh, since we're talking about writers, well, let's see. Well, I did want to talk a little bit about we left about where we left you in your personal history last time. Oh, yeah. After uh, after you had been on tour with Towns Van Zandt. And was working for Poppy Records as the promotions director, minister. I was actually my my title was minister of propaganda. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's good which was a nice uh, <laughs> it's been a lifelong title yeah, I think it was a nice uh, kind of uh, take on the on the times you know um, but I never I never propagandized anything really I, I was uh, I wasn't very good at that job mm-hmm. so um, yeah so then I I uh, so you want to know what happened next? Yeah, so you got back from being on the road I with I got Towns. back from being on the road with Towns, and I entered this sort of period of um, nothingness that culminated finally in, well, Mom and I decided we were going to get married because we figured we should do it now. We had known each other for almost five years. And what year was this? Ni- now it's 1970. Okay. Um, and you were at 22. Yeah. And we should we should get married and see if it's going to work. Yeah. Because if it's not going to work, then we should know, you know. I mean, mom's very open about this. She says that, that we we sort of shook hands and said, let's see what happens. <laughs> and if, 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 if it fails, then we're still young enough to find other people, <laughs> you know. It's a good attitude. Yeah. So So we got married in June of that year. I had no job. I had no prospects. I, I mean, I, I definitely can't, a catch. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> lucky, lucky woman. I can't believe that not only that she married me, but that her parents allowed her yeah. to do this. You know that we had their blessing. I mean, uh, was, well, they were open-minded yeah. people. But somewhere in that summer. I decided that because I wasn't going to be involved in radio or in the music business or anything like that, I I had to do something. And everybody I knew was getting into teaching. My best male friend was Lou D'Antonio, and he was a teacher and had been for many years. And um, mom was, was going back to school to learn and get her uh, license to, to teach. And I thought, well, okay, this is an exciting time, open classrooms, there's all kinds of experimental things going on in teaching now. Uh, Sure, I could do that. So I applied for a job at a a little um, private Catholic primary school in Elizabeth, New Jersey, called Bender Academy, the Bender Academy, Mm B-E-N-D-E-R. It went out of business a couple of years ago, I believe. Um, it was a private school? It was a private school run by nuns. <laughs> and the reason why I, I took that route was because I did not have a license. I was going to go back to school to get it. But in those days at 
Catholic schools, private schools, you didn't need a license mm-hmm. as long as you proved that you were taking the courses and, and you were working towards the license. So I, uh, I talked my way into this job as a seventh grade, uh, seventh and eighth grade language arts English teacher at this small academy. And uh, I've read, I spent the summer reading books. I didn't take courses. I just read a whole bunch of books about modern education, open classroom, uh, the the new ideas, you know, the Montessori schools and the free schools. And all but, so you were serious about it. You were like, I'm going to uh, yeah. learn how to be a teacher. I was serious about it, but I really didn't. I didn't really do the work. <laughs> you read the books. I read the books. And, but, <laughs> and so uh, fall came around and. I started to get that weird, creepy feeling that you got, that I got as a kid when school started. I was getting that same creepy feeling now as a teacher, like, oh, my God, you know, like that that nausea on a Sunday night thing, yeah. you know. And uh, I, I went in and, you know, there were a couple of other lay teachers, that is to say non-religious people, you know. I was not a... I, I had completely lost my religion at this point, but I, I passed for it. You know, I, I could still, I could still conduct the, the Our Father and the Hail Mary at the beginning of the day and all that. Which you they know. did that. There. Yeah, they did. It was an they, active, yeah. actively a Catholic school. But these, these nuns were a fairly uh, liberal order. Of, of nuns. I don't remember what order they were, but this particular group of nuns and the woman who hired me, the principal, was, you know, kind of into the the alternative lifestyle thing that was happening, the counterculture, you know, peace, love, brotherhood, all that kind of stuff. And I guess she thought I'd be good for the school because I was, they never had anybody else like me ever there. And uh, I lasted, what, about f- four or five weeks, I guess, because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have anything to back it up. I had like, I had a rap. I had a, I had a, a thing that I presented, and it took me a couple of days to present it. And once I was done presenting it, I didn't have any follow up. <laughs> and after a couple of weeks, they started getting calls and visits from parents wondering why. The kids weren't getting any homework. Oh, no. Why they weren't doing any, you know, grammar. Why they weren't... So they didn't hand you a curriculum. Like, these days you would get handed. Yeah, no, no, no. I was... It was literally, you were supposed to come up with the whole curriculum yeah, yourself. And you yeah, had nothing? nothing. You didn't. Did you assign them th- books to read? I assigned them books to read. I mean, I think there was some... I don't remember much about it. Yeah. You know, because it was a bad time for, for me. Really. <laughs> yeah. It was a scary time. Basically, what I did was I went to school every day and I made sure that they kept busy and I read Kurt Vonnegut novels. I was just discovering Kurt Vonnegut right. you in, said that. in 1970. And, um, you know, I guess it was Slaughterhouse-Five had come out in 1969 and that was the book that really blew Kurt Vonnegut you know, up and and put him on the map. Right. And I learned about him then and started with Slaughterhouse-Five and then went back to 
uh, all of the novels that had, had come out prior to that point. I mean, he had written um, before 69. Let's see. Cat's Cradle. Uh, Player Piano, The Sirens of Titan, Mother Night, uh, Cat's Cradle. God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, and Slaughterhouse Five in 1969. And then Breakfast of Champions came out After later that. in mm-hmm. uh, 1973. And these were all, you know, regular old school paperbacks, you know, the small paperbacks, not the trade paperbacks yeah. that we have now. And I could literally put him in the inner pocket of my sport jacket because I was wearing a tie and a jacket. Just, you know, I was a teacher, you know. <laughs> and... Little did I know that I actually made an impact on several of these kids because in the ensuing years, ever since, I've gotten email and letters from kids who go, didn't you teach, you know, at Bender Academy on such and such a street in Elizabeth, New Jersey in 1970? Because I think you were my teacher. Oh my God. I mean, and you were so cool and you were crazy and we didn't know what to make of you, but what happened? Where did you go? Oh, they liked you. Yeah, sure. I was a cool guy and I wasn't making them do any work. (laughs) They were their favorite teacher and then you left. (laughs) You know, and and whenever they would leave me and go to the next class, the next subject, I'd just sit in my room and read the Kurt Vonnegut novels. You know, that's what I associate with that gig. So, yeah. So then, you know, it became apparent that I was not I was not happy there and I was not the right guy for it and I didn't have anything to back up the the good story that I presented, you know, the the pitch that I What was your pitch? I I, I don't know. I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember. But you had a Just that I was that that it was going to be it was I was going to appeal to the children as a whole. I was going to broaden their horizons. I was going to bring all this other stuff into the classroom, mm. this music. Sounds and like a art. lot of work. Yeah, you know, <laughs> to do it well would have required uh, the dedication of a great te- You know, I, mean, <laughs> I, I admire those people so much. Yeah. It's, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world, you know, but it was yeah. not for me. Yeah. So... I guess I had a couple of conferences with the with the the head, you know, the principal, and uh, we sort of talked around some things. And I started giving more traditional lessons. And after about five weeks or so, I just knew I was so unhappy. I just knew, and it was sort of a repeat of the other experience that I had with a religious person back when I was in the, the novitiate, right, where I knew I was going to leave pretty much on the same day that they got rid of me. Yeah. You know, when I was in the novitiate, I was walking down the hall to go to the brother, the, the head guy, to go to his office to say I wanted to leave. And he was w- waiting for me, literally. He was going to wave me in because he was ready to kick me out. Yeah. And the same thing happened with this nun. Uh, pretty much on the day that I was going to quit, she was going to oh fire me. And l- so that happened. Yeah. Right? And good we, at reading the, reading the vibe. You know, we, we, we shook hands. We parted company. It was still early enough in the semester. I mean, I left them in a terrible position. They had no teacher. 
you know, and it was like it was getting on to uh, Halloween. You know, it was like October. Yeah. It was. But they were, you know, they were nice to me. They knew I meant well, and I knew they meant well. And we, we parted company and went our separate ways. And I breathed a big sigh of relief. And within three days, I don't know exactly, two days, four days, somewhere in there, within a week, certainly, I get a phone call from my old friend, acquaintance, Larry Yurden, who had been instrumental in turning my head around and introducing the idea of the phrase freeform radio as being the phrase that um, that could be applied to what I was already doing on the radio. Larry Yurden calls me up and says he's been hired by, a, a, by ABC Radio, big national company, to work in New York as um, their consultant putting together live radio at their O&Os, which were their owned and operated stations. I think there were either seven or nine O&Os and a bunch of affiliates as well. So the affiliates was another, you know, bunch, dozens and dozens of stations were affiliated with the ABC network, which at that point had been doing a format called Love. They had a guy who was like just a recording. He was a syndicated voice. His name was Brother John. And he was like the love guy, you know. He wasn't like a religious thing or anything like that. He was just like, you know, like the mamas and the papas, right. the brothers and the sisters. He was Brother John. Mm -hmm. And he played all the cool hip music of the day. Um, but they realized that that was not what was called for, at the, that they had to have live stuff in each of the major cities, especially in New York and Philadelphia and, um, you know, uh, wherever the other, Detroit was another big city for them. And Larry was basically calling up all the freaks that he knew mm -hmm. all around the country and getting them uh, in for either auditions or for appointments to meet with program directors and general managers and getting all of his friends hired to man these radio stations. And mm -hmm. he said, he said, we're looking for, they're looking for um, a guy to, to be like a production guy to do commercials and stuff, but also to be on the air for a couple hours a day. Would you be interested in such a job? And I'm like, yeah, sure. How soon after you, you left teaching did this happen? Uh, within a week, within a week. And so I went in and I met with the general manager of WABC-FM at the big ABC building on 6th Avenue in, in, in Midtown Manhattan. And uh, he said, um, you know, we, we can't really, you know, pay you a lot because we're just, we, we haven't had live DJs or anybody live here. It's all been syndicated. You know, it's all been this guy, this one voice, Brother John. We can only pay you um, uh, $300 a week to start. Is that okay? I remember, and I remember this specifically, sitting in this guy's office, Lou Severin was the general manager. He said, we can offer you $300. Is that okay? Like, and he apologized yeah. for it. And I'm like, uh, yeah, it's okay. It's oh, my God. It's, it was more money than you'd ever. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I made $45 a week at, at FMU. Yeah. I couldn't have been making more than $100 as, as teaching at the school. Yeah. And now this guy's going to pay me $300 a week to, to, to make like 
cool hip commercials uh, for like little sex toy stores <laughs> downtown in the village, you know, and and then do a show for two hours in the afternoon while they were slowly making the station live 24 hours a day and getting rid of phasing out this love format that they had. So what it had what had it been before the love format? Do you oh, know, remember? I don't know. I don't remember. But it, they brought in like that. That was the new trendy thing. Was this is like it was like a hippie idea? Yeah. Like, well, it love was radio. It was the idea of um, well, in the mid '60s. Well, short short history of FM radio. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> Many stations owned AM and FM frequencies. Yes. And. Until the mid-60s, most of them simply simulcasted whatever was on their AM channel on the FM channel. The FM channel was cleaner in terms of sound. The FM channel was stereo, whereas the AM was not. It was monaural. Uh, but, but FM was not really... Um, at all popular. Nobody listened to it. I mean, the only music that you heard on FM radio was classical music. Up mm-hmm. until a certain point, because classical music sounded better in so stereo. So it was like for nerds. Yeah, and, it was for audio nerds when or you, something. When you like bought a radio, it wasn't automatically an AM/FM radio. When it was you, just AM. Yeah, when you bought a car, if you wanted, uh, you know, both, you had to special order the FM radio. Why? Yeah, Why be, was it AM? Why was AM, AM easier to produce? Yeah, AM had more power. You could blanket the entire northeast of a okay. country or the entire east coast of a country like ABC AM did or those big stations down in Mexico that would broadcast all the way up to Canada, you know. So it's, it's just worse quality but a stronger signal. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And at at a certain point in the mid 60s, the FCC decreed that that stations that owned both had to put separate programming on the FM channels. And that's where oh. that's the birth of FM radio was suddenly they now had to come up with something. They had to come up with something. And there were all these hippies everywhere going, <laughs> yeah, well, we can, you know, hire me. I mean, there was there was oh. there was somebody in each town who had the nerve to walk in and say, yeah, I'll uh, sell commercials to the local sex toy store. Right. And um, I'll I'll get my friends to come up and we'll play rock and roll. We'll play our record collections. We'll do what the little underground stations like FMU were doing, only we'll do it now in commercial radio. Yeah. That was the birth of FM radio. So that love thing was like a stopgap to be like, okay, we got to get something yeah, on here, yeah. so let's put this syndicated thing on here, but then we got to come up with our own programming. Right. They were they were probably simulcasting ABC AM, which was at that point the most successful top forty radio station in history ever. You know, it was the ABC All Americans. You know, it was Cousin Brucey and all those guys, right? Yep. So. Uh, so, yeah, so they, they got this love format, and then they knew they needed real people, and they needed a live presence in these O&Os, the mm-hmm. seven or nine stations that they actually owned. And that's when Dave Herman, who had been working in Philadelphia at WMMR, I think, he was hired to come to New York to be the, the, the key guy on in the evening 
Um, he was mostly known as a morning man, but he was going to be on in the evening. He was doing a show in Philadelphia called the Marconi Experiment. <laughs> and he was a guy who had worked in all kinds of other formats in radio. He was older than, than a lot of us. But he got turned on to marijuana and LSD, and suddenly he was, you know, yeah. he was the, the king of the hippies. And he ended up at ABC also? He got the offer that he couldn't refuse. Right. I mean, he used to tell us the story about how he didn't want to leave Philadelphia because he was, he was God in Philadelphia. He was right. the—everybody listened to the Marconi experiment in 1966, 67, 68 in Philadelphia. Yeah. And now it's 1970, and they're wooing him. And each time he says no, they offer him more money. Right. They offer him more perks. They offer him more, you know, stuff— cars and sure. vacations and all this and he keeps saying no because he really doesn't want it and he finally gets offered so much that his wife says you know you really you got you should really think about this <laughs> right, we have to do that and uh and so he, so he goes to see a gypsy what he goes to the gypsy to 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 find out what he should do yeah. Right? The gypsy fortune teller. Sure. And the gypsy fortune teller. Where did he find? I don't it, know. Someplace a along, uh, but, uh, the, along the Jersey Shore somewhere. You yeah. Because Philadelphia, they used to go to the Jersey Shore. Okay. Down you there. find a gypsy. Yeah. And uh, and the gypsy said something to him that made him s decide, okay, he asked for another $10,000 above the money they were already the the outrageous yeah. money they were already going to pay him. Did she say ask for ten thousand more and then come give it to me? <laughs> no, that? no, no, no. It wasn't anything like that. And and uh, they hired him and they hired all these other people and they hired they hired me and that was the beginning of my professional commercial radio. radio career. So were you commuting from New Jersey every day? Yeah, from East Orange. I took the bus, the DeCamp bus from East Orange. Um, into New York, into Midtown Manhattan. And initially you were working on com making commercials. I, I made commercials and what they call public service announcements. I was responsible for that. And what I would do is I would go through the Village Voice and cut out all the ads for demonstrations and and meetings and stuff like that, and I would put them in our book, in the station's book, for public service stuff. That's mm -hmm. how I got it. That was my way of being a public service guy. Yeah. But I learned how to make commercials. I learned how to edit. I learned how yeah. to... And it was for all these cool little local sponsors. So it, there was a great deal of like creativity involved. Yeah. And I was doing two hours a day on the air in midday because that was one of the few points where they didn't have a live DJ yet. Yeah. And so they offered me that. And right away. Yeah, right away. So I was on the air almost immediately. That's amazing. And, you know, meeting all these cool people and, and uh, Elton John in November of of uh, 71, was it? 11, 11, 71, I think. Uh, we broadcast a live Elton John concert from the Fillmore East. That was like one of the first big, huge radio concerts. And, and you know, none of us looked back. <laughs> for, and for were many, you immediately, were you immediately happy when you got there? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. like, it was, great. it was cool people. Yeah. 
you know, the the bad guys had not were not yet showing themselves to be bad guys. You know, I mean, they wore suits. The guy, the Alan Shaw, the the uh, uh, the vice president in charge of the FM stations or whatever, you know, whatever his title was, he was definitely a corporate guy. But he talked the talk, you know, even though he wore a suit. Lou Severin, the general manager, was a salesman because mm-hmm. general managers of radio stations usually always were from the sales department, not from the programming department. So th- they didn't really understand us, but they knew that we knew what we were doing. So they let us alone. They trusted you. They trusted us. And that That's radio remarkable. station, that radio station was a total, complete, weird, wild, crazy, freeform station for about a year and a half. I mean, there was a guy who did the morning show. His name was Michael Cascuna. He's now a producer of, of jazz recordings and reissues and stuff. He would come on the on on the show and and at nine o'clock in the morning he would play like a fifteen minute long John Coltrane piece, right. you know, unheard of stuff. Right. And and all the all the Abby Hoffmans and all the political people would all show up to be on his show and Dave Herman's show, and then finally they hired a guy named Alex Bennett who was a talk radio guy who then took over the morning show and did a total like left wing political program and they 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 left us alone meanwhile on the other side of the of the building was where wabc am was where dan ingram and cousin brucey and all those guys were still holding uh, down the fort of top 40 radio so there was this interesting kind of uh yeah. interplay between the old and the new mm-hmm. and one of my fondest memories is of uh the New Year's Eve of 71, 70, uh, either 70 or 71, I forget which mm-hmm. now. But New Year's Eve, uh, I was hanging out late, and there was this guy named Mike Turner who I was scared of. He was on the air. He was from Detroit, and he was just like one of those scary guys with long beards who kind of looked like you didn't want to cross him you know sure and he smoked a lot of dope and i think he took a lot of other stuff too and you know and he was on the air and cousin and you were not that tough let's no i was a little little... sweet pussycat of a guy (laughs) you know uh bruce morrow got off the air at at 10 o'clock or whatever i think he was on from six to ten or something like that and he stopped in most of the AM guys were, at first, they they kind of were standoffish, but eventually they became friendly, and they let us into their world, and we let them into our world. And he was older also. Brucey was older, yeah. yeah. And uh, and this is cousin, same cousin Brucey that same, was on. That serious satellite radio yep. and all, you know, he's still there now, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came in to wish us a happy new year, and there was a joint being passed around, and somebody handed it up to, to Bruce. And Bruce went, ooh, cousin, ooh, cousin, and, you know, passed it along and then said, oh, but, you know, I'm on the, the president's uh, anti-drug commission. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. It's you know? <laughs> like, oh, whoa, cousin. Bruce. <laughs> oh my god i love so it was Bruce fun you. and i th- these were the days when i smoked a pipe yes all the time and i had this um this like a tobacco pipe tobacco pipe yeah 
and I smoked this this blend that had a sort of a chocolate aroma, mm-hmm. and I smoked it everywhere. Yeah, you know, no matter where Cause I, you could, because you could, you could smoke, you know. And I never asked anybody if it bothered them or anything, and it was a nice smell. So people used to tell me they liked it, and the the woman who was the traffic director there, she was the one who like coordinated the commercials when they would run on the air. Uh, that's what traffic meant. It didn't mean cars. It uh-huh. meant the, yeah. She used to call me her chocolate Easter bunny. <laughs> and I'd, I'd walk through the halls and she'd go, oh, chocolate Easter bunny is here. You know, so it was like it was like being in the middle of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah. You know, it was like it was just it was great. It was it was and they were paying me three hundred dollars a week. Yeah. You know, I was putting money in the bank. <laughs> and how long did you stay there? Um. A year and a half, maybe. Okay. But again, a relatively long period of time. Yeah. It was still, even though it was the 1970s now, it was still sort of like time was yeah. standing still, still the way it did in the 60s. So yeah. that period lasted for a long time. Well, so I think now that we've gotten you to that point in your career, and we've we covered a lot uh, in this episode, uh for our yeah, next I, for our next episode for the next episode yeah we are going to as a tribute to the bleaker moment in that year when you were trying to be a teacher and failing but being very cool and reading your Kurt Vonnegut novels we have an interview that you did with Kurt Vonnegut years later years yeah, later yeah in in the mid 90s mm-hmm. um and, and we want to play that but there's some other there's some other like cool PLJ stories that I'd like to tell. Well, so why I don't th- we do well, that? I think we should stay. Well, let's stay um, when we come back to talking. Let's stay in those years. But I think for the next episode, let's play that recording just to break up. Okay. Because I, I like, you know, I want us to be sharing these recordings. <laughs> yeah. Let's negotiate this. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> while everyone listens. But no, because I think it's fun. You have so many old, old recordings. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a long one, right? So we'll make the next episode. Well, I have, there's a couple of different versions of it. There's a there's like an excerpted version that I made that's about 25 minutes yeah. long. And the actual whole one is about an hour and a half almost. So why so. don't we, we'll leave this episode here since we've mm-hmm. covered a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, next episode, let's just make it that that recording of you and of that interview. Really? Yeah, I mean, well, we can introduce it. Why don't we finish this up and then we'll negotiate it? I mean, we don't have to bring everyone along on this journey with us. Okay. <laughs> but uh, one thing I wanted to say also um, for a self-promotion moment is that if you go to my website, kateskelsa.com, in, uh, let's say, in the month of November, and... Sign up on the homepage there for my mailing list. I'm going to have a cool giveaway for people who sign up for my mailing list this month. Really? And I think what I'm going to do is uh, an annotated version of the book that has little notes from me about the book in it. And also a charm bracelet that I made as a favor, as a party favor for my book party. Oh, I have that. The the uh, keychain. Yeah, I make keychains and charm bracelets. I have the keychain upstairs 
You know, you know that little Buddha that I yeah. think you gave me. You were a yeah. man that gave me that little Buddha that's on my dresser upstairs. Yeah. And I, I had the keychain wrapped around the Buddha. It's really nice. Yeah, I got yeah. really excited when I thought I wanted to make uh, charm bracelets. And then I found, I was like, okay, what charms can I use? And I went on uh, Etsy and I found a state of New Jersey charm. Because, uh-huh. you know, the fans of The Impossible Life takes place in New Jersey. And right. I feel like it has a New Jersey identity. So it's got little charms on it. New State of New Jersey. Um, some of them have pizza, a piece of pizza. Some of them have bicycles. Some of them have little glasses of wine. <laughs> so it's a themed charm bracelet. But then also I think this uh, annotated now, copy you, of the book. You mean cool. you're, ac- you're actually going to write notes? I'm going to take a copy of the book and, and write secret insights. No it'll kidding. Be like, it'll be like, you know, the, um, what's it called when you listen with the director's commentary? Ah. Cool. So I'm going to do this giveaway. Uh, I'll I'll do it in December. But if you sign up for my mailing list in November, just on the homepage of kateskelsa.com, you'll be entered uh, to win that. That's very exciting. That's good, right? Yeah. And then the mailing list is going to be um, uh, just cool little secret things that I'm going to send out probably around once a month too. So I'll make sure that you know you I will I will treat your your email. With respect. Okay. KateSkelsa.com. KateSkelsa.com. Okay. Well, thank you. We really covered. We covered a lot in this episode. I'm Um, exhausted. I know. All right. Uh, Okay. So, yeah. Thanks for listening. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye.